0: Well, we're in a teaching series that I'm calling Rethink Church. The question that often goes unanswered is how did the message of the gospel even make it out of the first century? I mean, how did it survive the Roman Empire and Roman occupation of ancient Israel? How did it survive first century Judaism? How did it survive 70 AD when all of ancient Jerusalem uh, and, and Judaism came to a screeching halt? You know, the temple was torn down, the city was invaded, and all the Jews scattered, uh, there was just so much going on in that period of history. When you pause long enough to uh, look at it and ask the question, uh, it's like, how did this little fledgling group of people who believed this ridiculous notion that a man rose from the dead right in the city where they all lived, why in the world did anybody believe that? And how in the world did that message escape the first century? It's kind of unbelievable to think about. That 2,000 years ago, a handful of people poured into the streets of Jerusalem two months after the resurrection and said, Jesus, who was crucified right outside those walls over there, rose from the dead right outside those walls over there. And we are eyewitnesses to a resurrected Savior. We interacted with him and suddenly the city of Jerusalem is turned on its head. And within a few weeks, 5,000 men, plus all women and children, had embraced the idea that Jesus was the promised Messiah of God, the Jewish fulfillment of the coming Messiah, that the Messiah had indeed come to Israel, had died on the cross for the sins of the world, and had risen from the dead. And suddenly, Jerusalem is in chaos. There's excitement. There's conflict, there's this new movement that's kind of wreaked havoc with the delicate balance of power between Rome and the temple leaders because Rome gave permission to the Jews to do certain things and the Jews in exchange decided that they would keep the people under control. So there's this delicate balance of power and suddenly this new movement that was referred to as the way, it wasn't called Christianity yet, it was just called the way, it threatened that balance of power and so there was resistance and a persecution broke out. And the apostles were, were arrested and flogged, which meant they, they could have died. They were sent back to their homes and warned, no more teaching about the name. They wouldn't even say it. No more talking about the R word, the resurrection. And Luke tells us in the book of Acts that they went back and they just couldn't keep quiet. They were so bold. And finally, an organized persecution breaks out. And for three years, Christians, as they would eventually be called, Christians were scattered throughout that region, fleeing this persecution. But everywhere they went, they told this crazy story that a Jewish carpenter named Jesus, who became a rabbi, he was sent from God, he was killed by the Romans and the Jews. They worked together on this, and, but now he's risen from the dead. And either I am an eyewitness or I spent time with people who were eyewitnesses who actually saw and interacted with a resurrected Savior. So three years later, something incredible happens. Three years into this widespread persecution of the church, one of the ringleaders of this persecution, a guy named Saul, who we know as Paul, had an incredible conversion and suddenly became a leading voice for the very thing that he'd been persecuting. Then he decided to do something really crazy he decided to take this message outside of Palestine, outside of Judea, and spread it throughout the known Greek world, throughout Turkey and Greece and all along the Mediterranean Rim. And all those little dots on the map represent places where Paul went and created little ecclesias. Remember that word from a few weeks ago? Little gatherings, little called out congregations, little churches, And for years, he traveled in this part of the world and everywhere he went, even to these Greek-speaking cities and these primarily Roman cities and said, God has done something unusual. It is the fulfillment. It is the culmination of all of this religion. It's the fulfillment of Old Testament law. It's a fulfillment of all of this Old Testament prophecy. And it is the birth of a new covenant, a new understanding and agreement between humanity and God. So for the rest of his life, Paul went through this entire region of the world teaching uh, this message, planting all these little ecclesias, all these little churches throughout the Mediterranean Rim, which leads us to today's story. Meanwhile, while Paul is doing all of this back in Jerusalem, which is sort of the hub of everything Christian at that point, there's a controversy that's brewing. And it's very, it's interesting, and it's so relevant to where we are today, and I think it's relevant to the modern church and for us at Faith Community. This is about 20 or so years after Jesus uh, rose from the dead. This is right after Paul finished his first missionary journey, where he's spreading the gospel to all these non-Jewish people. And here's what the controversy was about. It was about this. Who gets in? Like, who should be a part of the church? And how good do you have to be? Like, how many rules do you have to keep? How holy do you have to be? How much of your lifestyle do you have to clean up before you can be accepted in the church? What does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus in terms of lifestyle? Uh, So like, how good do you have to be? And the controversy is very understandable uh, if you understand the first century. You had a group of Jewish people who had like the Ten Commandments, And basically 600 other laws that they had been brought up to keep. They believed that Jesus or Christianity or the way was an extension of Judaism. Because after all, I mean, he's the Jewish Messiah. And so they just assumed that in order to become a follower of Jesus, that you first had to become a follower of Moses. That essentially you had to become Jewish before you became Christian. So suddenly all these Gentile believers from all over this region of the world where Paul has been now found themselves kind of stuck. They're like, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait. Paul, Paul told us, he assured us that Jesus died for our sins, that we can have peace with God through grace, through the forgiveness that Jesus brought. And now the leaders in Jerusalem are sending us all these messages. So just wait a minute, hold on. In fact, they actually sent people out to some of these churches to say, "Say, wait, 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 slow down. Uh, it, it's not that simple. First, you've got to memorize some things. You've got to do some things. You've got to jump through some, some hoops. You've got to clean up your act. Then you can embrace Jesus. Then you can become a church person. So the early church is wrestling with this thing. And I want us to look at this this very first church business meeting, because in this very first church business meeting, as they wrestled with this tension of grace and truth, there's some huge takeaways for us as we think about our responsibility and our stewardship of being leaders and participants in the modern church. So, if you have your Bible and want you to and you want to follow along, we're going to be in the book of Acts again, uh, chapter 15. I'm going to read you the story, and I just got to warn you up front in case your kids are here. This is a little PG-13 ish. Uh, It's in the Bible. Uh, We're we're going to stumble upon a thing that may make you uncomfortable, but I, I I kind of want us to be uncomfortable because it's just unbelievable what the early church got tripped up on right out of the box. So I'm going to invite you right now to uh, take your kids over to FCF Kids, or if you're with us at Church Online, just press pause and take your kids out of the room. And, uh, okay, so here we go. Here's what happened now that I have everybody's attention. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea. That's the capital. That's where it's all going on. That's where the apostles are to Antioch. So Antioch is the first place actually that the word Christian was used to describe people who were following the way, the way of Jesus. And they were teaching the believers. So you got these Jews that came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Here's their message to these brand new Christians. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. They're like, okay, wait, what? Like, wait. Unless you have a surgery, you cannot become a Christian. Okay, Paul didn't tell us about that part. So so what you're telling us is, you're saying that you can't be Christian until you're Jewish. And they're like, That's exactly right. All you Jewish guys or all you Gentile guys, you can't become Christian until you become Jewish. So here's the deal. If you're going to be saved, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to participate in the church, this this brand new thing here, you got to be Jewish, which means you guys are going to have to have a minor surgery, okay, to be saved. And they're like, whoa, what? What this meant was that the new members class in the Antioch church was primarily women and children the guys are sitting out in the car going, honey, you go ahead and go in. I got to think about this. I mean, I love Jesus and everything, but you know, it's kind of weird, isn't it? So we read this and we're like, let's just go to the next verse, but let's just sit here for a second. This was serious business. They really believe that before you can fully be embraced by the church, And before you can become a full part of the ecclesia, the gathering, the congregation, you had to join the Moses Club before you can join the Jesus Club. That's what they were teaching. Let's move on. Verse 2. This brought Paul, as you might imagine, because he's been going throughout the entire Gentile world, going. It's simple. It's simple. It's grace. It's just embrace Jesus. This brought Paul and Barnabas, who's traveling with Paul, into sharp dispute and debate with them. So here's what happened. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem, where this crazy message is coming from, because this message kind of started in Jerusalem. They were kind of following Jesus around all, or following Paul around to all these churches that he had started, saying, okay. Uh, just back up a little bit, just, just slow down, because Paul didn't tell you the whole thing. He didn't tell you about the Jewish part. He didn't tell you about the surgery part. So Paul now is going back to Jerusalem to be like, wait, 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 what? What is going on? What are you guys doing? Verse two. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles. It's like James and John and Peter, like the, the big shots, and all the elders about this question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the ecclesia, this, the gathering, not welcomed by a building, not welcomed by an institution, not, they, were, they were welcomed by the gathering. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. So Paul shows up in Jerusalem and says, okay, we've got to talk, and before we have a conversation, I just need to bring you a report. So for the last year and a half, almost two years, I've been traveling around the Mediterranean, planting these churches. Everywhere I go, there are Gentiles who are like, oh, oh wow, yes, I believe this. Yes, I believe. You've persuaded me. There are Gentiles now all over part of this, this part of the world who are embracing the message of Jesus when they embrace the message of Jesus God does some extraordinary things in their lives and we're starting all these churches as we travel and I haven't been telling them to clean up their act and become Moses followers before they become Jesus followers I haven't been front loading the gospel to say okay there's some things you've got to start doing there's some things you've got to stop doing and we probably need to give you maybe I don't know let's say six months to see if it's all going to stick then if that works out then you can have go to a class and become part of the church he's like I haven't been saying that so guys we're sending mixed messages to the Gentiles. Let's sort this out. So he made a report. This is, really, this is really fascinating. Acts 15, verse 5. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, this is really significant. When Jesus rose from the dead, even some of the Pharisees said, you've totally messed up my categories, but how could you not be the Messiah? So some of the Pharisees have joined the way that they are so committed to the law of Moses, right? So they're struggling. Oh, by the way, Paul was a Pharisee. So some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, for us Gentiles, when we think the law, even in context of like Old Testament, we think like the Ten Commandments, right? Those are good commandments. We like all of them Uh, We don't obey all of them all the time, but we want our kids to obey them. Uh, But that's that's really not what this is talking about. There were over 600, depending on who you read, either 612 or 613 laws in the Old Testament. So here's what they're saying. uh, Paul, we want you to get back on that boat. We want you to go to all those cities that where you've started all those churches. We want you to train all those new believers in how to change their entire lifestyle to adapt to 612 new laws. because so, we like you know, Paul, they got to eat different. They got to dress different. They got to walk different. They got to they got to obey the Sabbath. They got 612 laws. They got to get into a class. I mean, once they've developed a lifestyle with these 612 laws and have a surgery, then they can be part of the church. And we're like, that is absurd. But here's where we're going to be careful before we judge them too harshly. If you've been in the church for, I'm just going to say over 10 years, or maybe maybe it's only five years, this kind of thinking creeps in for all of us. It does. If we're not careful, we all settle into our own version of Christianity, and suddenly Somebody or something comes along that doesn't fit our version and we become a little bit like the Pharisees, even the Pharisees who had followed Jesus, and we become a little judgmental. And that's what's happening in the first century here. Verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them. Don't even know the law. Don't even know there are 10 commandments, much less 612 commandments. By giving the Holy Spirit to them, listen, just as he did to us. And they're going, oh yeah, that's right. We've, we've heard these stories. Continues. He, God, did not discriminate between us, the good apostles, Jewish boys who did all right. You know, did it all right growing up, got it all in right order. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? So let me sort of elaborate on that. He's basically saying, hey, Frank, I see you back there. I see you. Hey, Frank, isn't it true? Isn't it true? Because you're like a good Jewish boy, Frank, right? Have you ever broken the law? Frank, look at me. I know you have. I saw you at the temple making a sin offering, so that means you sinned somewhere. Didn't you break the law, Frank? And Frank's like, well, every once in a while, I have a little sin time, and so, yeah, I broke the law. Okay, okay, I'll give you that. I broke the law. Well, Frank, didn't you break a couple of the commandments? Well, I suppose, you know, he's like, come on, like Jewish friends. Look, we don't even keep the law all that well. We've grown up with it for generations and generations. It's been instilled into us. And we don't even keep the law very well, do we? To which they would have to be like, no. Then why in the world would we expect Gentiles who didn't grow up being taught the law like we've been taught the law since children, why do we want to put on their back something that has burdened us down for years? Let's not be hypocrites here, he's saying. And it kind of got to them, continues. Verse 11, he says, no, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved just as they are. Because God knows the heart, right? This is the important part for all of us, that God can purify your heart before you purify your life. God can purify a heart before you drop that destructive habit. God can purify a heart before you fix your marriage. God can purify your heart before you finally face up to the fact that you have some insecurities that drive you into behaviors that you're ashamed of. He can do that for you. He can do that for the people around you. Peter goes on at the end of what becomes a sermon. James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and makes the most extraordinary statement. Verse 19, James says, it is my judgment. In other words, we're bringing this conversation to a conclusion. I've been listening. I've heard the debate. Here's what I have decided. It is my judgment, therefore. That we, I love this phrase, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Guys, I've heard the debate. I've heard the discussion. I know we have a standard, a moral standard. I know there are commandments. I know God is God and God is a God of absolutes. And I know Jesus is all about grace and forgiveness. And I know sometimes there's like this conflict and we're not going to be able to sort it out and sometimes it's going to get messy. And here's what I've concluded, bottom line. As we keep this movement alive, as it begins to circle the globe, we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Anything that makes it difficult for people who are turning to God, we should remove it as fast as we can. This is about people turning to God. This is not about who's here in this setting right now. This is about people who aren't here yet. This is about people who are still considering. So come on, guys, he's saying, let's not make it difficult. Instead, he said, here's what we should do. We should write to them, these Gentile believers down in Antioch. This is kind of crazy. Verse 20, he says, instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain. So here's what we want you to do abstain from food polluted, to idol, or food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. So the guy who's taking notes, he's going to get this letter going. He's like, so okay, that's good. What's the next one? And they're like, well, that's it. Wait, what? Well, that's it? Okay, so, so you've just taken 612 rules and the Ten Commandments, and you've set them aside, and the only thing you're going to tell them is basically two things. Try not to offend the Jews, and abstain from sexual immorality. That's what you're telling them. Yeah, that's it. What about lying? What about cheating? Well, let's not burden them down with that stuff right yet. Let's just tell them, try not to offend the Jews because that meat thing, it's very offensive. So I want you to be sensitive to Jewish brothers and sisters. I want you to abstain from sexual immorality. And that's really it for now. So come on in. You're in. Here's what happened. Verse 21. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times. This is why he did the thing about uh, food, because it's like, guys, you know you're going to be mixing with Jewish people, and it's very offensive to them, so let's be sensitive. And I think, you know, this is sensitivity training 101. It's actually a biblical thing. Verse 21, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogues and every Sabbath. So they decide then to go ahead and send this letter, and here's what happened. We'll wrap this part up. So the men were sent off, went down to Antioch where the churches gathered together and they delivered this letter from Jerusalem and they're opening the envelope and all the men are like, surgery or no surgery? Surgery or no surgery? Come on, let's go. We really want to know what's in that letter. It's a big deal, okay? Verse 31, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Now, this is a big subject and obviously today is not enough time to go into all the details of this, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal for us. And I simply want to leave us with three statements because every local church, every denomination, every Christian ministry struggles with this. In every generation, this conflict has raised its ugly head with some terrible, terrible consequences. So for us, here are three things we've got to avoid, and I put them down in the form of a drift because every local church drifts towards these things, and the people in churches drift towards these things, and we've got to continue to be intentional to make sure that we don't drift in that direction. So here they are real quick. First one is we have to avoid the drift toward insiders and away from outsiders, Every local church, over time, drifts towards being focused on insiders. So by insiders, I mean the people who are already here, people who know the songs, who know where to sit, who know how to park, who know the deal, in and out. This is our deal. These are our people. Every local church drifts towards becoming insider-focused, and it's understandable it's easy for churches to become insider-focused and focused on the people who are there, the people who are volunteering and serving, the people who are paying the bills, the people who are doing the work, the people who make things run, and even sometimes the people who complain the loudest. It's natural. But in order to be a church where we're the embodiment of grace and truth, not just one or the other, we've got to be intentional about avoiding the drift toward insiders and ignoring those and neglecting those who are on the outside. Second one is this. We've got to avoid the drift toward law and away from grace. Because this is huge, and I don't even, I don't even mean uh, theologically. I don't mean we need to start changing our theology, but this is a practical thing. This is a practical thing. The natural tendency of the drift of every local church is to kind of have a lot of rules and policies and keep adding on to that and uh, to think in terms of categories. That's kind of what happened in the early church. But think about this. One day Jesus is walking along and he sees Matthew. And Matthew is a tax collector, which means everybody in town hates him for good reason. And Jesus is like, hey, Matthew, I want you to come with us. And, and Peter, he's like, wait, wait, category, stop. Tax collector and policy. You must no longer be a tax collector to be a follower of Jesus. You got So you've got to quit you want to follow Jesus? Quit being a tax collector. And Jesus is like, No, 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 Peter, you're, you're missing it. Matthew, just come with us. Come with us. We're going to have a conversation. And they're like, But wait, he hasn't stopped being a tax collector yet. He's in the wrong category. And Jesus is like, We're bringing him with us. Well, where are we going? Well, I, th- I was thinking we'd go to his house. Well, that's even worse. I know. So we're going to his house and probably invite some of his friends and have a little party. <laughs> oh, and then later on, we're going to meet Zacchaeus and we're going to go to his house. Then we're going to meet a woman caught in adultery and everybody's going to want to stone her. And I'm going to say, here's an idea, go stone yourself. Because basically Jesus said to that crowd and he's going to say to her, this is unbelievable. He's going to say this to her in John chapter eight. He's going to say, look, you committed adultery. Don't do that anymore. By the way, I don't condemn you. But Jesus, she's an adulteress. She she hasn't she hasn't promised not to be an adulteress, and she hasn't signed up for a recovery group, and she doesn't have an accountability partner. It's like shh, sh- 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 that's category, that's policy. We're not having categories and policies. I don't I don't condemn you. I forgive you. But Jesus, what if she goes back and does shh? Sh- 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 sh. It's not about categories and policies. Let's have a conversation. Let's have a relationship. I believe that churches that are okay with the messiness of no categories and no policies, avoiding the layer upon layer of rules and expectations, those churches are far more likely to understand and experience this amazing mystical merger of uncompromised truth and full-on grace. Because policies and categories are easy. You don't have to meet with anybody. You just send them a form. You know, conversations and grace, that's messy. And it's wonderful and it's powerful and it's life changing and transforming. And it's what Jesus did, it's how he operated. And that's what the local church is supposed to do as well. Third drift we have to avoid is the drift toward preserving rather than advancing. This is so subtle. In the story in Acts 15 in the early church, the Jews did exactly what anybody in their situation would naturally do. It's like, you know, like wait a minute, we gotta, we got to preserve this. we got to preserve the law. God gave us a law. We can't let people trample all over it. we got to preserve, 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 preserve. In their effort to preserve something that was really good, they forgot to advance the kingdom, which was the thing they'd been called to do. And Jesus came along and he's like, no, we're going to advance the kingdom even if it gets messy, even if it blows your categories all apart. We're going to take risks and we're going to do things and we're going to accept people and we're going to love people that are hard to love and that are hard to accept, but we will not make the mistake of allowing our desire to preserve, to override our mission and our passion to advance this cause. So we have to do ministry just like this, open-handed. God gave it, God can take it. We're not trying to preserve anything. We want to be financially responsible. We want to be wise, but we don't want to be so comfortable that we quit taking risks because this isn't about us. This isn't about those of us who are in. This is about a community that doesn't yet know Jesus. This is about a community that has been burned and hurt by their church experience. So the last thing we can do is become risk adverse because we're trying to preserve something. This happens to local churches and denominations all the time, and it started with the first church, first church in the very first century. So I'd like for us to kind of make three commitments, to kind of come around and agree upon three commitments together. So I'm just going to put them up on the screen for you, and then uh, you can do what you want with it, and we'll, we'll pray about it, and I'll pray for all of us. Simply this. We talked about the first one. It is to be bold. Do you know how to keep from becoming insider-focused? You're bold. You're bold in terms of who you invite and what you invite them to. You're bold in terms of how you live your life, the fact that you maybe let them know that you're a Christian. You're bold in that you, you help us protect the culture of this church so that it's always open and welcoming to people who don't consider themselves church people. And then secondly, on top of boldness, we have to err on the side of grace. When there's a conflict between a moral imperative you know, here's what the scripture teaches. We absolutely love the scripture. It is our authority. And here comes a person who's not quite there yet. And there's conflict, there's tension. We have to decide when we're, gonna, when we're talking about moral choices, when we're talking about destructive or addictive patterns, when we're talking about sexual orientation, when we're talking about political positions, here's where I hope we land. That if we're going to make a mistake, if we're going to go too far either way, let's err on the side of grace. Aren't you glad God erred on the side of grace for you? Aren't you glad he didn't say, all right, I'm going to love you and accept you. Um, There's one condition. Here are 612 laws and rules I'd like for you to master first. Call me when you got that all situated. Call me when you got your stuff cleaned up. Why would we not err on the side of grace? It's how we ensure that we are a growing, energetic, future-oriented church, and we never become about categories and policies. So be bold. Let's err on the side of grace. And the last one is simply is to remain open-handed. I hope we take more risks in the next generation of our time together as a local church than we ever did at the beginning. We have more to risk. We have more to lose, but we have more potential than we have ever, ever had before. So let's not become a church that accidentally drifts into a posture where we're trying to protect something as opposed to advancing something. Because you know what? We believe James is right, don't we? We believe James is right. When he stood up and he says, you know what? I can't answer all the questions about this. This is pretty nuanced. There's lots of tension. I can't address all the particulars, but here's what I know. Let's not make it difficult. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. So if we can be intentional about avoiding these drifts, if we can be intentional about trying to be a church where this mystical thing of truth and grace come together in a powerful, dynamic way, then perhaps God will continue to use us. And perhaps God will use you to do something unique and remarkable in our generation as we continue to be a part of something big that we call the church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we're humbled that you have entrusted us with the stewardship of the ecclesia, your called out gathering. There have been many times in generations past and in our own experience where we have not stewarded this responsibi- responsibility well, where we've not exercised wisdom and discernment, where we haven't acted in bold, with boldness, And uh, the cause of Christ and the work of his kingdom has been hampered for that. And so we acknowledge that and we confess that today. And we want to just renew a commitment to be bold about the calling of Jesus on our lives for the sake of those around us. We want to renew a commitment to err on the side of grace. And we want to remain open-handed with what you've entrusted us with. May you receive all the glory for anything good that comes out of our lives or comes out of our lives together in this church. May it not be about us, but may you receive all the glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name.